Amen, all right. Well, hey, how many of you guys remember the last study that we did? Uh, we started off with that Simpsons cartoon. Remember that? And remember how they were mocking and scoffing the rapture, which isn't, unfortunately, a surprise because 2 Peter 3 predicted that when you're living in the last days, you would have that scoffing, mocking society. And it's out there all over the place, including so much so it's prevalent that even, even in the cartoons. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but apparently the Simpsons show is not only guilty of predictable behavior, but apparently they've got the ability to predict the future behavior of the global elites and how they're going to try to snooker the planet into going along with a new world order, including with the media, before our very eyes. Watch this episode. This is not a conspiracy theory. I checked it out. It's legit. It's from 1993 of The Simpsons. And you tell me if this doesn't sound a little familiar, what's going on right now. Let's take a look at this. I'd like to call to order this secret conclave of America's media empires. We are here to come up with the next phony baloney crisis to put Americans back where they belong in dark rooms glued to their televisions too terrified to skip the commercials. Well, I think... NBC, you are here to listen and not speak. I think we should go with a good old-fashioned public health scare. Uh, yeah. A new disease. No one's immune. It's like the summer of the shark, except instead of a shark, it's an epidemic. And instead of summer, it's all the time. That is smoke. Now, I hate to be the guy who derails what everybody else loves. He loves being that guy. But, Janice, we do have standards. This can't be a made-up disease. The only moral thing to do is release a deadly virus into the general public. We do have something we've been holding on to, but it hasn't been tested. Get over here, NBC. Uh, well, well, we certainly believe in testing, but I... Oh, oh. Wow. Wow. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. So we've got our deadly disease. And your phony crisis in 1993. I'm sure that's just a quinky dink. Yeah, if you've been coming to our years-long studies, years-long study, world religions, cults, and the occult, the occult, the elites, the global elites, the people behind the New World Order which is the rise of the Antichrist kingdom the Bible talks about, these guys will actually tell you what they're going to do if you're paying attention. The problem is most people aren't paying attention. But the good news is God's been telling us for 2,000 years what these guys are going to be doing in the last days, including this kind of behavior, which is rising towards the Antichrist kingdom, right? And that's why we need to take it serious because time is running out, okay? If you're not saved, you need to get saved. This is not a joke, right? We are fast approaching the rise of the Antichrist kingdom, the seven-year tribulation, Okay, and you don't want to be there. And that's why we're going to continue our study, Are You Ready for the Rapture? Okay, and what we've been taking a look at is, again, this is a study where I call it where the rubber meets the road, right? And you can get all kinds of things wrong in life. Man, whatever you do, right? You can get wrong watching The Simpsons for your theology. Please don't do that, okay? But whatever you do, don't get eternity wrong. Don't be left behind at the rapture. Now, so far, we've seen seven things about the rapture in order to help people get ready for it, saved and unsaved, right? We saw the basis of the rapture, the importance of the rapture, the purpose of the rapture, the reward for the rapture, the timing of the rapture, the objections to the specifically pre-trib rapture, which we believe the Bible clearly teaches, okay? But then the last uh, five times, we saw the problematic positions of the rapture, starting with the post-trib position. There it is. There's your blessed hope. Ooh, seven years you're going through. The whole seven-year tribulation. Mm, wasn't true. We saw that. Then we saw the last two times was the pre-wrath position, right? There you go. There's your blessed hope. Ooh, three-fourths of the seven-year tribulation. Again, just to give you that visual again, the Bible, we believe, clearly teaches that the church leads pre-prior to the seven-year tribulation. As you can see there with the green arrow, before it happens. Shortly after, it starts, and then we come back with Jesus, Revelation 19, the second coming at the end. But pre-wrath basically says, nope, you're going to go all the way through to about three-quarters of the way, then you get out of here. And we saw that doesn't just disagree with what we believe the Bible teaches, the pre-trib position, uh, but because it disagrees with the Bible, it's got some serious problems. Okay, and what we saw is the pre-wrath position confuses the timing of God's wrath. It confuses the timing of the day of the Lord. It confuses the timing of the judgments of the Lord. And last time we saw, it confuses the identity of the church and it confuses the placement of the church and certainly the promises to the church. How do you get around this? Not just in this position, but any position that puts the church in the rapture. Revelation 3.10, a direct promise from Jesus Christ that you will not be a part of the hour trial, the seven-year tribulation that's going to come upon the whole world to test those on the earth. That's a direct promise from Jesus. How do you get around that? Unfortunately, they try, and but what they do is they create confusion, contradictions. And anytime you create confusion with the scripture, you contradict the scripture, you're wrong. With all due respect, you're wrong. And you need to allow the scripture to define your theology, including eschatology, uh, and get back to what it says. Unfortunately, that's not all. That's not the only group. 
these people, yeah, we've used the phrase before, uh, it's, it's called like the tri- uh, tribulation wannabes. They just want to be in the seven-year tribulation, whether it's post-trib all the way through or pre-rest three-quarters or this next one is basically the mid-trib position. And once again, you can see that lady is encouraged by this wonderful truth that you're going through half of the seven-year tribulation, hence mid-trib, Ooh, right? Uh, no, that, I don't know about you, but that doesn't encourage me. As the scripture says, encourage one another with these words, okay? Now, again, let me give you the classic definition of mid-trib. It's, it's pretty self-explanatory, but it's the mid-trib position on the rapture seems to be a compromise, key word there, compromise, that's the problem, a compromise between the pre-trib position and the post-trib position. And according to this view, the seven-year tribulation, they say, is divided into two halves. And the first half, they say, is described only as the wrath of man. Really? Right? We'll get to that in a second. They say the second half, the last half, okay, okay, that's the wrath of God, but only that part. Therefore, they say the rapture of the church will take place exactly in the middle of the seven-year tribulation, three and a half years prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end. And again, let me just give you some visuals of what they basically teach. It's pretty self-explanatory, but here's the pre-trib position, right? We leave prior. That's what we believe the Bible teaches. We come back at the end. They say, nope, nope, nope. You're going through the first three and a half, the first half of the seven years, and uh, then, then you get out uh, after, after that fact. But again, as you can see, just like the other two positions, we examine biblically, which by the way, that's how we're supposed to derive our beliefs, right? From the Bible, right? So you, you don't, it's not my word, your word, who cares? What does the Bible say? So just like the other two positions, post-trib, pre-wrath, now mid-trib, uh, they got some serious problems, okay? All of them, because they disagree with the scripture. And I'm gonna bring out some of those to you uh, today. Now, the first problem with the mid-trib, and the, the key theme here is the old belly laugh. <laughs> Are you serious? Are you serious? I mean, the other ones that we saw had some serious problems, but these guys, are you kidding me? Come on. Uh, This is uh, not that the other ones were strong arguments. They weren't. But man, this one's a really weak one, what they try to base this on, that we're going halfway into the seven-year tribulation. Now, by way of uh, recap and reminder, uh, as you may have guessed, all these positions, there's a lot of similarities in why they're wrong, Right? And uh, for the sake of uh, not being completely redundant, because I'm going to short, share you just four things that I got problems with biblically with the mid-trib position. Okay, but there's a ton more, but I don't want to be redundant. So if this is your first time here, if you're watching online, and this is the first study that you're getting, please, I invite you to go back to our post-trib studies and our pre-rest studies, and you're going to see even more problems just like it was with them in this one. Okay, so just with that. So, but I don't want to be completely redundant. I just want to give you four obvious ones. Why do we reject uh, the, uh, the uh, mid-trib position, okay? And the first one, again, is this. It places the church in the seven-year tribulation. But wait a second. If the seven-year tribulation is when God pours out his wrath, how can we be there? Whether, whether it's all the way through post-trib or pre-wrath three-fourths or even midway, how could that be? And you're thinking, are you sure about that? Well, yeah, I read the Bible. And in fact, let's open the Bible. Romans chapter five, don't take my words for it. Uh, let's again take a look. Are we ever going to step one nanosecond as the bride of Christ, the church, in this time frame called the seven-year tribulation? We can't, all right? According to the Bible, if you read it, and I highly recommend it for some strange reason, right? Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through 11, been here several times before, but let's take a look at it again because it's the same problem with all these positions, right? You create a contradiction in the scripture, right? Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through 11 says this, but God. Now, aren't you glad for those two words, but God? No matter what you went through in life, but God. I don't know how I'm going to get through it, but God. I've done too much, you can't say me, but God, right? And here's what he says, but God what? Demonstrates his own love for us that in this, while we were perfect. Mm, no, while we went to church services and earned our way to heaven. Mm, while we were just lovers of Jesus Christ. Mm, while, hey, we always love God. And just I, I've always been a Christian my whole life. Mm. You hear that from people. While we were what? Still sinners, Christ died for us. And then because of that, here we go. Now, since now we've been justified by his blood, how much more How much more shall we be saved from what? God's wrath through him, through Jesus, right? For if when we were God's enemies, not just sinners, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. You may be seated, reconciliation, that we are at peace with God, no longer at war with God. We're not his enemies. We're not considered sinners. We're considered saints. And because of that, we rejoice. Anybody glad about that? But we're saved from God's what? 
wrath. And again, as we saw before, that's not the only passage that teaches us this obvious biblical truth. Praise God for the cross of Jesus Christ, right? First Thessalonians 1. This is before 1 Thessalonians 4, for those of you hooked on chronology, right? So before the rapture passage, Paul says this, right? And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who what? Rescues us from what? Not just wrath, but the coming wrath. That's the article there, speaking of a specific time frame, i.e. the seven-year tribulation. And then after 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture passage, he mentions it again, right? 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11. For God did not appoint us to what? Suffer wrath, but what? As Christians, but to receive salvation through who? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, in light of that, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you're doing right? You could be having a bad day, man. Uh, Somebody could have served you KFC last night and you're going, I don't even know how I'm going to make it to services. But you should turn to somebody and say, hey, be encouraged. You're no longer under the wrath of God. Encourage one another with these words. And dare I say, that includes the wrath that will be poured out in the seven-year tribulation, right? You can have a bad day, but man, that one should always put a smile on your face. Now, that's the problem. That's the problem with mid-trib. They say by definition that you're going to be halfway into the seven-year tribulation, but that places us for three and a half years, not three and a half seconds, not three and a half nanoseconds, three and a half years in the wrath of God. So how can that be true? We just read this. It's it's not. One guy, he puts it this way. One of the many, key word there, many problems with the mid-trib position is that it believes the church will go through the seven-year tribulation for three and a half years, but you get removed before the worst part, the second half, what's also called the great tribulation, and that's true. You thought the first half is bad, wait till you see the second. They said, but, but, but you, you get raptured out just before that part starts. But this assumes the church is going to be in any of God's wrath, not just, quote, the worst of it. It's contradictory to the Bible. The scriptures tell us the church is not destined to God's wrath. And so to say that we would experience God's wrath is not only contradictory to his ways and his character, it's contradictory to the Bible. And, quote, this is yet another reason why the mid-trib position fails, quote, the test of sound biblical analysis. For those of you hooked on big theological words, that means it's wrong, right? Because you contradict the Bible. God doesn't contradict himself. We can't be there, right? And that's why we reject it. Not because we're just a bunch of weasels and wimps and we haven't stored up enough food and we aren't spiritually strong enough like those other people. No, it's because you disagree with the Bible. That's why we reject it, okay? Unfortunately, that's not all. The second one is now, aha, they remove the wrath of God in the seven-year tribulation, because now they got a conundrum, right? We just quoted, the scripture's very clear, man. It's all over the place. We just saw three texts, that when you're a born-again Christian, you're trusting in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you get encouraged, I am, I'm saved, I'm rescued from, I'm not appointed unto the wrath of God. How many guys got that so far in our study? Isn't that a wonderful truth? And then we just pointed out, well, that's the problem with mid-trib and the other positions. How could you stick the church in there in the seven-year tribulation when it's seven years of God's wrath, Right? See, rather than submitting to the scripture saying, well, we got it wrong. I guess the church isn't going to be there at all, which is what the pre-trib position holds to, which is what we hold to because it's biblical. But they, they got a problem. Well, well uh, how, do I get, how do I fix the problem that I created, that I got the church in the time for me? <gasps> That's what we do. We, we, we start playing gymnastics with the Bible. We start twisting the scripture so that we can make it sound like that the in this position the first half isn't really the wrath of God, right? It's the same unfortunate behavior that we saw with post-trip. It's the same unfortunate behavior with pre-wrath. You try to redefine God's wrath and say, oh, no, no, it, this part over here is not the wrath of God. And it's the same thing that these guys do. Okay, they would have you and I believe that God's wrath does not include the full seven years. It's only in the second half, the final three and a half years. Okay, now watch this. How they try to fit that in there is they say that, listen, this first half, Okay, what they'd have you and I believe is really just the wrath of man. Really? Okay, as we saw before, and again, I'm not going to go into that deeply. The whole seven years is God's wrath from get-go, from the very beginning all the way to the end. Okay, but let's, let's expound on this. Do, do, is, is it really just the first half? Is that really just the, the wrath of man, not the wrath of God? Don't think so. They confuse the wrath of God, okay, when they say it's only in the second half. All right, now, first of all, the two-sided scroll in Revelation is always a sign of wrath in the Bible. And as we saw before in Revelation 5, before the thing even starts, who grabs the scroll? Who's the only one worthy to grab that scroll? Jesus Christ. So that tells you who's in charge of the scroll. What does the scroll contain? The scroll contains all the judgments from God that are going to be poured out during the whole seven-year tribulation, starting with the seals and the bowl or the trumpets and then the bowls, right? So Jesus Christ is clearly in charge. 
right? So how can you sit there and say this is coming from man, this is man's wrath, when it's completely the lamb? And as we saw before in Revelation 6, when it starts, who's the one opening all the seals? And this is the first half. And the lamb, and the lamb, and the lamb, and the lamb, and he, and he, and he, Jesus. In fact, one guy goes there. And in fact, verse 4, right, uh, prior to that, we have the opening of the first seal, the Antichrist. The Antichrist himself is a judgment of God. Do you realize that? Yes, he comes with false peace, a message of false utopia, but it's a lie. But that's an actual judgment from God. That starts at the beginning. And then in verse four, Jesus releases the next one, the red horse. And then you got the uh, peace is taken from the earth. People kill each other in a horrific global war. Then verse five and six, Revelation six, uh, the Lord Jesus opens the next seal. You've got the, the black horse rider and, and then a whole giant famine goes across the earth. In verse eight, uh, the pale horse rider comes from Jesus, right? On, with this scroll and death and Hades follow him. A fourth of the earth is annihilated by sword, famine, uh, death and plague. And we're just getting started. That's just the first part of the first half of the seven year tribulation. And it's clearly come from Jesus. So how can you sit there and say, oh, no, just, just the wrath of man. It gets even worse. The mid-trib not only says that, but the mid-trib says that the first half, I'm not joking, this is a precision. The first half is a time of the Antichrist reigning in peace. Okay, I, I just read some of the scripture to you dealing with that, but let's put this all together. Does this sound like a time of peace to you? Global delusion with the Antichrist rising, global war, global famine, global pestilence, global death, global martyrdom, global earthquake, global terror, and global asteroids slamming into the earth. <laughs> what a great time. <laughs> as one guy said, surely this is not a time of, quote, peace on earth as the mid-trib position would have us believe. It's ridiculous. You can't say that the first half is just from man and the Antichrist ruling reigning and then only kicks in the second half. Are you kidding me? All of it. Now, the second half is worse. It's called the Great Tribulation. But the first half is no cakewalk. But more importantly, who's it coming from? Jesus. This is not coming from man. Can man make asteroids slam into the earth? Can man, come on. As one guy says, it is completely erroneous to say the first three and a half years of the tribulation are not a part of God's wrath and instead are the wrath of man. Which again is the code word for, you got it wrong. Okay, and that's why we reject it. Not because we're a bunch of wimps, because you disagree with the Bible. And as Christians, we're supposed to derive our faith and rule and practice from the Bible, okay? But again, that's just uh, that part. The third problem is this. They place the church, just like the other positions, <laughs> this makes you laugh, doesn't it? Uh, in the seven-year tribulation. They place the church in the seven-year tribulation. Now, again, by this point, you think they would give up. And, and I, I mean the other ones too, right? Post-trib, pre-wrath, and now mid-trib. Uh, you, you sit there and say that we're in the seven-year tribulation, but we're not appointed unto God's wrath. Uh, then you try to dance around that and, and twist the scripture and say, well, no, 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 just that first half isn't really the wrath of God, it's the wrath of man, and that's not true. You think it'd stop right there, but mm-mm. They're so, again, tribulation wanted me. I want it to be true. And so then they approach the scripture. I got to find, I got to find a proof text. I got to find a Bible passage, a passage in the Bible that I can twist and make it fit my version of how long the church is in. And that's what these guys do. Not just post-trib, not just pre-wrath, but mid-trib as well. Now, the passage that they tweak to try to mm, squeeze the church in and say, no, 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 okay, maybe I got that other part wrong, but uh, we, we really leave at the middle, and that is Revelation chapter 11. Now, if you're familiar with Revelation chapter 11, that's the account of the two witnesses, right, who've been used by God, okay, in the first half of the seven-year tribulation. And I kid you not, what these guys would have you and I believe is that these aren't literally guys. Uh, they're symbolic symbolic. I'm telling you, they got to find something to try to squeeze their position, make it work. They're symbolic of the church. And that when the two witnesses are rise from the dead, that's really the rapture. Yeah, I know it's crazy, but again, let's start to break uh, down biblically, contextually. Here's what they would have you and I believe. Revelation 11, 11 through 12. Here it is. But after three and a half days, a breath of life came and entered in them, the two witnesses, and they stood on their feet, right? And terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Folks, I don't know if you realize what you just read, but that's solid proof that the church gets raptured in the middle of the seven-year tribulation. Yeah, while uh, with no enthusiasm is right. Because it's like, are you serious? What does that got to do with the wrath? Nothing, right? 
But they got, I'm telling you, they got to find some proof text to try to squeeze it in there. And they actually say the two witnesses are only symbolic of the church, okay? And there's no literal pass. It's not even literal at all. You just, no. These are two literal guys. One guy says this. He says, listen, uh, there's no way you could say that Revelation 11 is symbolic of the rapture of the church when the whole passage uh, invites you logically to take this literal, right? You got two literal prophets, two literal guys, uh, including their literal dress and their literal prophecies and the literal plagues that they send upon mankind. They're, they're literal guys. They're spoken of as two prophets when they're killed and their dead bodies lie literally for a definite period of time, three and a half literal days there in a literal city, which is literally identified as Jerusalem. So how could you sit there and say it's symbolic? Nothing in that text would give you that indication unless you're looking for something to squeeze your position in there. And that's what they did at the halfway point there, right? Also to say, they say this, the two witnesses symbolizes not just the rapture of the church. Watch this. They say it symbolizes the two classes of the rapture, the dead and the alive, right? Now in 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture passage says what? What's the order of the events? The dead in Christ, those who've already died as Christians, they get their resurrected bodies first. And then it says, we who remain or who's still alive, we're what? We're basically hard on their heels. We go up right after them and we get our resurrected bodies at that time. We escape the death thing. How many guys excited about that part? Yeah, because that death thing, I don't know about you, but again, I'm going to make it the last thing I do. (laughs) But anyway, that's the order of the service, right? The rapture, right? You got the dead go first, then life. Watch this. On top of everything else, they're getting wrong with the mid-trip position. They say that uh, uh, the whole thing represents the two witnesses the dead and the alive at the rapture. Okay, well, first of all, it's two literal guys, but they say, no, no, this, this is the rapture of the church, and each witness, one witness describes symbolically the dead in Christ. The other witness symbolically describes those who are still alive. Uh, read the Bible, and it falls apart. Uh, in the Bible, Revelation 11, remember, both witnesses die, right? So how could one of the two witnesses symbolize the church that is alive at the rapture and the other symbolized the church that's asleep or dead. In Revelation 11, they're both killed. How do you kill saints that are already dead? Turn to somebody and say, well, duh. Uh, you don't. Now, they also say, because again, they're just looking for something. It symbolizes. And they say, well, the, the word there, cloud, in Revelation 11, it, it's the same as the rapture cloud. Uh, no. There's no indication there that any two such references to clouds, which does represent typically, biblically, God's presence in the Bible, uh, but it, that it has to be the same appearing of the Lord. You got two different distinct books by two different distinct authors. It's not the same time frame. Then they go on to say that uh, the, the great voice, well, see the great voice there, right? Uh, it, it's the same voice of the archangel that's mentioned in the rapture passage. Again, that doesn't mean that it's the same account or you're, just, you're assuming all that. And then finally, not so surprisingly, here's something they skip. Uh, the rapture says, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. Revelation 11 says, the voice comes from heaven and then calls him up hither. Why don't you bring that up? All right, but the whole thing falls apart. Why? Because it's not there in your text. And that's their big proof text. Well, this is proof why we leave it the middle point. And, and they have to twist it. They symbol, that's not how you interpret the Bible. And again, that's why we reject it because you got all kinds of problems. Now that's just a part of it. The other big part of their argument that does not fit the scripture as well is these guys say, okay, all right, fine. If you don't want to say that these two witnesses are really symbolic of the church and, and the cloud and the voice, and, but uh-huh, it's that trumpet, right? Because during, in Revelation 11, it mentions this seventh trumpet and that's the same trumpet that's blown in the rapture. There it is. Really? Let's examine that contextually. Man, you got this one all wrong. You're just grasping at straws at this point. But this is a major crux of their argument. Revelation eleven fifteen. the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven, which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. I don't know if you noticed it, but right there, folks, that's the rapture trumpet blowing in the middle of the seven-year tribulation, proof positive that we leave in the middle. Yeah, right. Uh, Not even close. I mean, not even close. Now, first of all, just because you see the word trump or trumpet in the Bible doesn't mean it's the same one, right? We saw this before. Remember the the other ones make the same mistake? 
They try to find the church in the seven-year tribulation, so they take the word saint and say, well, that's got to be the church. No, the Bible, it could be Old Testament saint, New Testament saint right now, tribulation saints, those who get saved after the rapture in the seven-year tribulation, or millennial saint. So it's the same thing. Just because you saw, yeah, the word trumpet's there, but that doesn't mean it's the same trumpet that's mentioned in the rapture. In fact, it's not, right? But one guy puts it this way. He says, listen, there's all kinds of trumpets mentioned in the Bible. Did you know there's 62 trumps or trumpets mentioned in the Bible? So it, talk about a faulty assumption to say that it has to be speaking of the rapture. There's no way. And he says, it's common sense. He said, a case in point would be this. Uh, in the movies, Ben-Hur, and in the movie, Wizard of Oz. Did you know in both those movies, you heard the sound of trumpets? So does that mean that they're prophetically related? No. He gives you another example. He said, if your friend John went to his favorite restaurant last night, and another friend of yours, Larry, he said he went to his favorite restaurant last night, does that mean they both went to the same restaurant? No, because each restaurant could have been a different one. They had different favorites, right? He says the same logic applies to the mid-trib and saying, well, I see the word trumpet. It's got to be the rapture. He says, this is crazy. He says, quote, with blind devotion to this similarity of the trumpets, he said, listen, I wonder if these last trumpeters, the mid-tribbers, are able to distinguish the difference between Tylenol and Exlax. <laughs> Here's their logic. Watch this. He says, think about it. Use their logic. It's got to be the same. He says, Tylenol, Exlax, hey, they're, they're both over-the-counter of the drugs, right? Yeah. Oh, they both come in a pill form, right? In, in fact, uh, the both can be found in just about all medicine cabinets. Of course, he says, the problem is one will make your headache disappear. The other one's going to make your toilet paper disappear. <laughs> and how many guys would say that's probably something you want to make sure you get right? <laughs> you don't want to assume. But that's their logic, folks. That's how dangerous it is. Just because you see the word trumpet, doesn't mean it's the same one as the rapture, but again, they got to find something. But the whole thing falls apart like a house of cards. One guy, he puts it this way. The identification of the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11 as the same as the rapture trumpet, he said, it's ridiculous, but it is one of the key points, if you can call it that, of the mid-trip position. He says, but it's a faulty assumption. Revelation 11, the sounding of the seventh trumpet, first of all, is not even the midway point. Do you know that? When he sounds this trumpet, it says there, it is associated with what? We just read it. And the kingdoms of Christ will forever and ever. What is he talking about? It's talking about the reign of Christ, the judging the dead, the rewarding thy servants of prophets that happen at the end of the seven-year tribulation, right? And they say, that no, this is the midway point. So you get that wrong, okay? So there's no way you get And again, as we saw, the seventh trumpet, you got the seals. The seventh seal opens the trumpets the seventh trumpet opens the bulls and when do the bulls take place this is the seventh trumpet that unleashes the bulls it's at the very end of the seven-year tribulation at the final great birth pain right before the second coming of jesus christ so it's not even close to the midway point and yet this is your argument this is why we leave it the middle you don't even get the timing right let alone it's not even the same trump that's just the first of many problems then they have to explain why anything prior to the blowing of the seventh trumpet, has nothing to do with the wrath of God. Remember, because it's supposed to be just the wrath of man. Well, wait a second. So now you got to say that all the seals and all the trumpets, all up to six, is just the wrath of man? Antichrist reigning in peace? <laughs> There's no way. The trumpets are even worse than the seals that we already saw. Right? And it goes on. Furthermore, okay, uh, again, he says it's dangerous to assume that any of these trumps, John's trump mentioned here, is the same as Paul's trump mentioned at the rapture because you got different purposes for trumps. Contextually, right? There's a memorial blowing of the trumpets in Numbers. There's a holy convocation of trumpets. If you read just Numbers chapter 10, you got all different kinds. You got the calling of the assembly, the journey to the camps, the gathering together, the princes of Israel. You blow a trumpet to sound an alarm, to blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings, your sacrifices. So again, to assume this is the same, it's ridiculous. And furthermore, there are distinct differences between the trump blown in Revelation 11 and the rapture trumpet, right? Revelation 11, when that thing blows, okay, it introduces more judgments from God, an unparalleled time of suffering, judgment on the godless nations, but the rapture trumpet has nothing to do with that. It's not even about the godless stuff that's going on, on the earth. 
the rapture trumpet introduces good news for the believer that we are entered into unprecedented glory and privilege and the joy of God's presence. How can you say that's the same? Completely different. And furthermore, the rapture trumpet, when it's blown, when, when does it happen? Bang! Instantly. In the twinkling of an eye, right? Which, which speaks that when that thing goes off, there's brevity, there's speed, there's instantaneous translation. Not, hey, a prolonged trumpet blast and you got more judgment to come. How you could say this is the same trumpet as raptures, I just got to say, it's ridiculous when you look at the context. And then here's the nail in the coffin. Remember, they got to find, somehow I've got to make it sound like the rapture happens at the midway point. That's what they do with Revelation 11. We already saw that they say those two witnesses aren't literal two witnesses. That symbolizes the rapture of the church. Okay, whatever. That was in, in verse 12 through 13 there, right? And you say that's the rapture. And then you say three verses later, when the rapture is blown, the trumpet's blown, you say that's the rapture trumpet. Think about that. That means your so-called version, the two witnesses symbolizing the church, leaves prior to the blowing of the trumpet. Can you because that's three verses later. So what does that mean? You don't even agree with your own position. So technically, according to that, the rapture of the church, according to your version, would take place with the blowing of the sixth trumpet. Not the seventh, because they get raptured, the two witnesses, before the trumpet gets blown. You don't even agree with your own position. The whole thing falls apart uh, when you examine it biblically. And that's why one guy says this. He says, the fact is the seventh trumpet has nothing to do with the rapture trumpet. And any attempt to do so, quote, wreaks havoc on the true understanding of biblical chronology and biblical eschatology, which once again is your fancy, fancy words for, <gasps> you got it wrong. <laughs> There's no way you can say that if you allow the scripture to speak for yourself, and that's what we're supposed to do. But let me give you just one more. Uh, that's why we reject it. The fourth one is they remove imminency before the seven-year tribulation. Now, if there's one thing that's clear in the scripture is about this blessed hope, this rapture thing, is it could happen at any moment, hence the doctrine of imminency, right? We don't know when. It's an unknown hour. It could happen today, right? And so therefore, in light of that biblical truth, and this is one of the blessings of the imminency of the rapture, I don't have time to goof off. I need to get motivated. I need to get busy sharing the gospel because today could be the last day I get an opportunity to do that. I need to get busy living for Jesus. Number one, because I love him. But think about this. We've talked about this before. When the rapture happens, he's going to find you doing something. How's your walk? How do you want him to find you? So the pre-trib rapture, not knowing when, which is the only one that holds to imminency, by the way, which is the biblical position, it's the only one that motivates us to live for Christ. How does that happen with mid-trib? And again, just like the other positions, post-trib, pre-wrath, mid-trib, you actually destroy imminency. Because once you place the church in the seven-year tribulation, I can calculate the rapture and goof off accordingly, right? One guy puts it this way. The mid-trib position rejects the imminent return of Christ while fostering the unscriptural emphasis on date setting. Because if the rapture occurred in the middle of the seven-year tribulation, we know exactly when that is. And we also know, according to Daniel what is and Revelation 6, what is the exact thing that starts it. Daniel 9, 27, when the Antichrist makes the covenant with Israel. Revelation 6, 1, and 2, the rider of the white horse, the false peace. He rises on a peace tree, a covenant, and, and that's part of God's judgment. That's the event that starts. So if you're in the uh, seven-year tribulation as a supposed Christian, guess what? This is, quote, going to be an international event that all are going to know about. And so right then at the point, you go like this. Set my watch. I got three and a half years Party on, dude. Live it up. I get to goof off. Right? I can do whatever I want to do. Who cares? I, I got time to witness later. I ain't worried about how my walk is with Jesus Christ because he ain't coming for at least three and a half years. But what does that destroy? The imminency of Christ. Again, all positions do this. Once you put the church in the seven-year tribulation, by nature of your version, you can calculate the return of Jesus Christ. But that's not what the scripture says. And again, I'm not just making this up. Let's read the scripture. Here's what the Bible says we're supposed to do as we await the rapture. And it's not goofing off. Philippians chapter three, verse 20. But our citizenship is where? In heaven, right? And we what? 
We eagerly goof off. We set our watches. We're looking for the Antichrist. That's right, because then that tells us we got three and a half years to go. Woohoo! Party. I'm sorry, wrong translation. We eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, right now. Right? First Thessalonians 1:10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Right? First Timothy 6:14. To keep this command without what? Spot or blame. Why? Because he's going to find you doing something. And knowing that it can happen at any moment, eh, kind of keeps you on track a little bit better, doesn't it? We're not saved by our works, but I don't know about you. I don't want to be found in the middle of doing something wrong, right? Without spot or blame until what? The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. James 5, 8, you too be patient and stand firm. Why? Because you know the Lord's coming is near. It can happen at any moment. First Thessalonians 5, 6, so then let us not be like others who are what? Who are sleeping. <laughs> I got to have, I got three and a half years. I got three quarters of the seven years. I got all seven years to go. <laughs> Let's just go do whatever we want to do. That's what they would believe. And isn't it ironic, the very thing that they accuse us, the pre-trib position, it's actually their positions that actually encourage lazy, goof-off behavior? Yeah, it's called hypocrisy. But we're not like the others who are asleep, but let us what? Be alert and self-controlled. Why? Because it could happen today. Just like that. Titus 2.13, while we await for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, another reason why we reject this mid-trib position, all the other positions, once you put the church in the seven-year tribulation, it destroys what the Bible says we need to do. I'm just quoting scripture. We need to wait. We need to live holy and godly lives. We need to get the gospel out. We need to stand firm. Don't go AWOL. Don't be a bunch of chicken livers. Hold the line, right? Get out there. Speak the truth, God's love. Uh, his truth, share the gospel, be a positive advertisement for Jesus, dare I say. And one day he's coming back to get us. Therefore, freak each other out because you got three and a half years to go. Ah! Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It fits perfectly if you let the scripture speak for itself. We can't be there. Not for a nanosecond, not seven years, not three quarters, not this midterm position either. Okay, that's why we reject it. One guy says, clearly the Lord is telling us to be expecting the rapture at any moment. And you will always come across that conclusion if you read the Bible, which again, for some strange reason, I highly recommend, right? Uh, But unfortunately, that's not all. The fourth position, problematic position, we're gonna take a look on the rapture, is the partial rapture position. And that guy is just enjoying himself. (laughs) Because it's only, this position teaches this, it's actually making a comeback, if you can believe that. It's nuts. Only the super spiritual get to go in the rapture. Because Jesus is coming back. For a bride who's willing to suffer and to be cleansed. Not some mediocre Christians. And of course, the people who espouse that, it's never them. It's always those other Christians. And then, of course, when you get into this, it's always, they got their list. Here's that behavior you're supposed to emulate. And if you do any one of these, you ain't going in the rapture. Excuse me? That's nuts. That's called a works-based salvation mindset, which is dangerous because if you think you're going to get to heaven, which is the destination of the rapture, by the way, on your own works, you're going to be surprised. Not just your position is wrong. You're going to be left behind. But hey, we're out of time. We'll get to that, Lord willing, uh, next time. But as we close... Again, the question is what? It's not just like, wow, that was amazing. No, it's are you ready for the rapture? It's imminent. We just saw that again. And so as a Christian, we don't want, yep, I'm ready for the rapture. I'm wearing a weird jacket like Pastor Billy. (laughs) He's obviously ready or something's wrong with him. No, we're honoring the vets. Hang in there. (laughs) You don't just say you what? You show it. What does scripture say? You eagerly await. You're excited. You're longing for his appearing. You're living holy and godly lives. You want to be that positive advertiser. You don't want to... The way you walk with Jesus, turn people away from him? No, you want to invite them. You want to share with them. You want to get the gospel. That's how you do it. So are we doing it? And if we're not, and I'm talking to a born-again Christian, then get back on track. Because it could happen today. And where you're at right now, is this really how you want to find him? Sort of, maybe, kind of, sort of, maybe serving him, sort of, maybe, kind of? I don't know about you. We ain't saved by our works. I'm glad for what he did for us on the cross. And the scripture tells us, Paul tells us, Christ's love compels us. I don't want to do the things that I do. I don't want to refrain from the evil because I have to, or I'm scared that I'm not going to go in the rapture, or I'm going to go 
trying to earn my way to heaven and, or I'm going to lose my salvation. No, it's because he did it all. He took the fall and thought of you and he thought of me and it's guaranteed. Christ's love compels me to want to be that advertisement for him. Christ's love compels me until he comes and gets me. I got to tell as many people as I can that they could join us too, right? If you're not doing that, you need to get back on track today. But hey, if you're not here today, I don't know your heart, but speaking of the midway point, right? Mid-trips is midway point. Well, one thing that we know the scripture is clear, we know what's going to happen at that midway point. And what's going to happen to that midway point is the abomination of desolation. Mentioned in Daniel, uh, uh, also Jesus, Matthew 24, and Paul mentions this as well. It's called the abomination of desolation where the Antichrist goes up at the halfway point of the seven-year tribulation. He goes up into the rebuilt Jewish temple and he declares himself to be God. That's the abomination of desolation. Now, the intriguing news, if you're paying attention, not only to the Simpsons, but current events, the Jewish people are ready to build that temple. And we know biblically, emphatically, that will be the temple that the actual Antichrist goes up into three and a half years prior to the seven-year tribulation. Now, the news for you and I is we leave prior, before it all starts. So if they're ready to go, as you'll see in a second, they even got plans for air conditioning in this new temple then how much closer is our departure? And if you're here today and you're not saved, what in the world are you waiting for? Because the rapture could occur on a Sunday. Watch this. This is why. Architectural plans we're planning for the third temple. We included air conditioning, we included computers, parking lots, up to date, more beautiful, based on the spirit, based on the words that we read in the prophets. together and start coming to church with me. Not today, okay? I'll go with you next Sunday. Isn't that always, unfortunately, the response? I'll get right with God next Sunday. No, I'll get next week. And you know, I got, I got, after this next trip, I, I, getting late in the year, January's coming, New Year's resolution. That's when I'm going to do it. That's right. And how many people were in the church service that were left behind? I think that one's a little bit more biblically accurate given the apostate church today. There was a bunch of people still sitting in those pews, but now they're weeping and gnashing. Oh, why? Sat here week after week after week and I did nothing to receive God's love and grace and mercy and forgiveness that was completely free. Why? Why did I hesitate? Why did I? Why? But now it's too late. 
when you just entered into what Jesus himself said is the worst time in the history of mankind, so horrible that if God didn't keep it to just seven years, the entire human race would be destroyed. Why did you do that? Why? Why would you do that today? The rapture could happen today. Why are you waiting? God loves you. He's made a way through his son, Jesus Christ. You just got to receive his love and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Why are you waiting? What's, what are you waiting for? Why would you do that? But how many people today think that it's by going to church services? I'm American. I'm a Christian. I try to pay my taxes. I don't beat my dog too much. Right? I'm a good person. I haven't robbed a bank. God is holy, which means without sin, we are not. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You may not have robbed a bank, but you've stolen something. You, 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 you may not have committed physical adultery, but you looked at another person with lust in your eyes, which Jesus says is the same thing in essence. You, you say, well, I love God. I, I believe in God. Even the demons believe in God, and they shudder. They're not saved. Yeah, but I love God. I've always loved God. I always, really? really? We can't even keep the first commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. We are you kidding me? We love ourselves. We love money. We love things of this world, which is idolatry, which is breaking the second commandment. No, no, it goes. The only way to get to heaven is not by our works. We can't be good enough. We've all blown it. It's to the work of Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible says it is by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You're not going to get there because <laughs> look at me, God. You, of course, you brought me to heaven. <laughs> are you kidding me? We're going to get there, as Scripture says, laying crowns at his feet. Oh, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for your mercy. It's all for the taking. But will you scoff? Will you mock? Like the Simpsons encourage you to do, like our scoffing society? Or will you receive right now Jesus Christ, your Savior? What are you waiting for? Turn to him. He loves you. Join us at the rapture. Amen? Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death? In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying. Okay. How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even his name is holy. Hey, folks, let's be honest. If you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ uh, has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's his standard. Uh, uh, even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing. Uh, it's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? 
You still think you're going to get to heaven on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what did we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey, God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I, I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. And the scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step. To admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven. I need a Savior if we would admit that and then ask for the Savior to save us. That, that's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. You, the, the word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes that we've committed against Him and disqualified us, that disqualified us for heaven, right? And we've actually seen this work in real life. Uh, for instance, uh, there's been people who have committed crimes, gone to court, the gavel's been passed, the judge has said, hey, listen, we all know you're guilty, uh, you even admit you're guilty, and uh, for your crimes, you're going to not just jail, you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty, and did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row? It's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor, can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done. You can't undo it. Not because of they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy... The person who has the authority can give them a pardon and they can go free. And did you know it's actually on historical record that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty and they've refused to take it. And so even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive His pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what He was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you can be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth He is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the grave and the Bible says you will be saved. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Gill Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.